Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back here with you all again. Uh, we are going to be, and I have a little more time than last time I was here, uh, covering uh, the book of Jude. That's right, the whole book. Uh, Jude is the fifth shortest book in the Bible uh, with 25 verses. We're going to cover that all this morning uh, in our time uh, together. Uh, but before we read the text and we get into that, uh, I just want to make a few comments uh, about why this book is important for us to study. As I said, it is the fifth shortest book, making that list also are the last two epistles of John that are right before this, uh, as well as uh, Nahum. Uh, Jude, being a short book, is, is able to be digested all on Sunday morning, believe it or not. Uh, we could break it down to a couple sermons, but we're going to do the whole thing. And 60% of this book uh, is similar to Peter's second epistle. They both have this focus on what is seen many times in the New Testament, especially with those books that come at the end of the apostolic era. Uh, many scholars believe that uh, the last book in the New Testament was written around 70 A.D., 90 A.D., between that, uh, those two time periods, um, and that would be the book of Revelation. But there is this focus on what's called the parousia, the coming of Christ, because we are uh, here, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus has come, has resurrected, and we are still waiting for him, which we are here in the year 2023, or 2022, sorry. Uh, and, and so Jude has this focus on the parousia, on the coming of Christ, uh, and, and gives us this message on what it means to live in this world that you and I occupy. That is, as Calvin says in his little book on the Christian life that is often topsy-turvy, that often, as we look out at it, does not quite align with what Jesus said on the sermon, uh, on, um, when he was ascending into heaven, what Jesus said uh, in Acts chapter 2, where we are longing for that day where he will bring the consummation of the kingdom. And we're looking out and we're saying, when is that day here in Jude leaves us there uh, as we turn to his epistle together today. Uh, so we're going to turn to Jude. It's the second to last book in your New Testament. Go to Revelation, flip back one book, uh, and we're going to read verses 1 through 25 together. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and the brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about the, our, coming, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destined for, con for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, have kept, have, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursuit of natural desires, serve as an example 
by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake um, of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds uh, feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all um, and to convict all ungodly uh, all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are lo- loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to to others. Show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. God, we do ask that as we come to your word today, as we reflect on your glory and your righteousness, on your goodness and your grace, as we reflect on your judgment and your character, and as we reflect on your mercy, may you speak to us, may you be at work in us, may you cause us to know you more, to love you more, to find our security and our place forever before your throne. In your name we pray. Amen. In the year 1995, uh, Steve Jobs, who uh, started the company Apple, I'm sure probably two people in here know who that is, uh, Steve Jobs uh, was fired, kind of, you know, unofficially, officially fired from his own company uh, after founding about a decade earlier at the age of 30. Steve Jobs, the entrepreneur Steve Jobs, who, as many uh, Silicon Valley startups, started this company in his garage with a guy named Steve Wozniak, had had created this great company and produced, at that point in 1984, 
one of the most groundbreaking computers of all times, a Macintosh, who, they, which underperformed, but Steve was kind of a brash, you know, wasn't a CEO, but he was a manager of the company, the owner, majority shareholder. And the board came together, and his own hand-picked CEO and mentor, John Scully, come, and they fire Steve because he's a brash manager, because he kind of is young, doesn't really know what he's doing. But Steve Jobs kind of ends in this place that sometimes you and I find ourselves, we don't really know what to do. This company that he founded, this company that he created, this company that he poured his life into, that was his passion, his dream that he eventually came back to, to then create the product, the iPhone, which brought it to great success, and the iPad and all these other things that we now know and have today. But Steve was in this place that you and I sometimes find ourselves in. We think, what are we supposed to do in our lives when the future seems very uncertain? That this company that he had founded with his friend Steve Wozniak is now turning to him and saying, we don't want you here anymore. And Jude similarly puts us in this place and he says, what are we supposed to do in a world that oftentimes doesn't make sense? that oftentimes doesn't seem like it has a place for us, especially as Christians in the 21st century. As you can imagine, as I said in the introduction, that Jude is writing here probably you know, somewhere between 70 to 90 AD. Christianity has been around for a little while, and now it's on the outs. Because if you remember, all those who followed Jesus were killed like Jesus you remember if you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know, what is it? Peter is hung upside down on a cross. All the apostles are martyred for their faith, and all these Christians are thinking, but I thought Jesus was supposed to be Lord. And I thought that we were supposed to live and have victory because, he accomplished, because of what he accomplished on the cross. And yet, as Jude presents to us, we are living in a world that is often uncertain that our future in this world is very uncertain. And as you and I, we navigate this world today here in 2022, it is the same story for us. Because I think we oftentimes feel that we are on the outs, and that's who Jude is writing to, Christians who feel like they're losing their place in the world, in the culture, in society. And what he's saying to us is that as we navigate this world, that is unclear as we choose where to work, how to raise our families, where to live, what are we supposed to do with our lives? He points us to Christ and to this, as I said in the introduction, this parousia, his coming. He says, that is the certain place that we can find hope. In other words, what Jude says to us is that while we live in this world that is full of uncertainty, there is certainty in the imminence of Christ and his coming. Although now 2,000 years later, we're still waiting, Jude says it will happen. And we find our hope in the reality that Christ has come and that Christ will come. In other words, Jude brings us to the edge of eternity. He says, you want to find hope now. Look to Jesus who is reigning. Look to Jesus who is Lord. Look to Jesus who has risen over our sins. And what Jude says to us in light of eternity is that, as he says in in verse 3, and then again in verse 20, that 
we must contend for the faith in this present age by holding fast to God who builds us up in the faith and keeps us in his love. Jude says to us who live in this uncertain place that in light of Christ's eternal kingdom, we must contend for the faith by holding fast to God who builds us up in the faith and keeps us in his love. And what we want to look together today is we want to look at three things that Jude is telling us about this reality of what it means to hold fast to God, to contend for our faith in this present age. We want to look at three things that Jude has instructed us, and in. he's saying that we must rest in God's, judge, in, in God's justice. As we contend for our faith, we must trust in God's timing, and finally, we must cling to God's mercy. We must rest in God's justice. We must trust in God's timing. We must cling to God's mercy as we contend for the faith in this present age. So first, what does it mean for us to rest in God's justice? Well, Jude begins as he goes down to verse 5, and he talks about this reality of God saving a people out of Egypt. He says in verse 5, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. He then goes on to describe this story Uh, of these fallen angels who are condemned. He describes the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he skips down in verses 14 through 16, talking about this guy Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who if you know know, um, Genesis chapter 6, is also the great-grandfather of Moses, or sorry, not Moses, of of Noah. And and he talks about this prophecy. He talks about this prophecy that comes from a piece of uh, apocryphal literature and, and Enoch is saying, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Behold, these, uh, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on ungodly sinners who have spoken against him. In other words, what, what Jude does for us so often in this letter is he refers back to these stories, if you can consider his context specifically, that here was you know, Jews most likely because he relies heavily on the Old Testament narrative, but also on these apocryphal stories of Enoch, of the archangel uh, Michael contending over Moses' bones. He offers these stories that as our children are in kids' time, they would have heard as they were in their, you know, synagogue kids' time growing up. These would have been stories of the faith, and he hearkens back to them. He says, remember who God is. Remember who God is and what he is like and what he does. And here, these stories that he references, he says, look, God's always known what's going on. From Genesis 3 till now, from the fall of man till today, there's always been sinners. There's always been people who are rebelling against the very nature and the very reality of God. There's always people who are opposed to who God is and what he represents. There's people who deny the image that each of us bears, human beings, who deny the design that God has in this world, who deny his law that upholds all of nature. And he says, people have always been like this. God knows. He's not surprised. He knows who they are. He knows what they're doing. But look at these stories. Look at Egypt. Look at Enoch. Look at Moses and what he did. Did they take judgment into their own hands? Did they um, react in violence 
to the mishandling of judgment in their, to the mishandling of judge, justice in their day? Did they go out to this world and say, God is right, and so I must enact violence on this world? He says, no, they didn't do that. Because they trusted in God. They trusted in a God who was the judge. They trusted in what he was going to do. Again, he references, after he talks about God saving these people out of Egypt, judging the Egyptians, he references Sodom and Gomorrah, he references the story of Abraham, who judges that sinful city. How does God judge it? Is it Abraham who flings down balls of fire? No, it's God who does it. It's God who upholds justice in the world. It's God's place. It's God's purpose. And what Jude wants us to see is that oftentimes while we live in a very wishy-washy world, while we live in a world that oftentimes does not uphold justice, that God is a God who does uphold justice. And he will do it in his own way and in his own time, and he is well aware. In other words, what Jude is showing us is that we must hold fast to God by faith and trust him that he will do what is right that he will do what is good. He says, Moses did that, Abraham did that, Enoch did that. Knowing before the flood how terrible the world was, knowing as they were enslaved in Egypt how wrong things were, knowing that God had made a promise to Abraham and he was going to make a nation of him. And here his nephew Lot was living in a land corrupted by sin. And yet he trusted, no, God's going to do what's right. God is just, he will uphold justice in this world. And that cuts against a narrative that you and I oftentimes become subject to, that you and I often are complicit in. Uh, you see it. I don't know if any of you guys have uh, listened to or, or uh, read about or heard the, the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, very popular podcast put up by Christianity Today, I think about a year and a half ago. Um, and, and, and what it tells the story of is uh, Mark Driscoll, famous pastor in Seattle, and this reality of how we, even as evangelicals, that we bow down to this idol of anger, that we love power just as everyone else does, and we love a bully as long as the bully's our bully. And we see this in our culture. We see this in politics. We see how um, polarized everything is today around us. And even so in the church. And what Jude says is, we, he says, look, do we worship the God who is just? Or do we love anger just as everyone else does? Do we want a bully because if the bully's for us, then he'll do what we want? Or do we trust that God will uphold justice in the world? And where he points us to, what he directs us to in this world that we live in, is that we must trust, not in ourselves to act, but in God to act. And that doesn't get us off the hook to say, okay, well, now we just sit back, we do nothing. No, he says, you go out to this world, trusting in this God, and you live lives motivated by his mercy. Motivate. We are freed from executing this justice. Why? Because God is the one who will uphold justice. And it's not our place to do so, because it's God's place to do so. As Paul quotes in Romans, he says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's God's place to judge. And he will do it. He will uphold it. And so now we live in this world and we are freed to live 
as citizens of this kingdom, as ones saved by this God who will uphold justice, as ones who have experienced justice met with mercy and grace at the cross. Because in God's justice to us, he forgave our sins. And he then motivates us to live lives of mercy. He calls us to go out into this world as freed people to live in relationship with this king, to live in response to his justice, to live as those who have been loved. And that then leads us to our next point in trusting in God's timing. What does that mean? What does that look like? Jude goes on and he talks about the timing of God that leads us to this reality of patience. As we trust in God's timing, that we are led to this reality of God's patience. When I was um, I got two boys. I know I've been here several times. You guys have seen my boys are now eight and a half and six and a half. When, when we and my brother, uh, who are very close in age, like my son, we were probably about five or six years old. We were 18 months apart. Um, we were sitting at the kitchen table one morning. My dad had left the house, just left the house for work. Uh, my mom and my sister are sitting there as well. Uh, and, and we uh, go over to the phone, uh, you know, for, for those of us who are 30 years old and older, you remember that there was actually like a physical phone with a cord that was, you know, in your kitchen somewhere, right? And so we're going over to the phone and we're dialing on the phone. Uh, my mom, my sister are sitting there at the table. And then I say to my brother, hey, Joe, put it down. Dad's coming back into the house. My mom's thinking, I was here the whole time. What's, you know, what's going on? But that's the reality that Jude calls us to live. And he says, God is coming back. His coming is imminence. Is, is imminent. And what does that mean for us? How do we live in light of what we've talked about? God's parousia, God's coming, that he will come back in. That as me and my brother are, are afraid of my dad's presence because, oh, well, dad's coming in. He's going to punish us. God is coming and something's going to change in this world. And, and where Jude leads us to is he says, what does it mean for us now to live with the imminence of God's coming, with the imminence of Christ's return. He says at the end in verse 17 and 18, he says, remember the, the apostles were talking about this. They said in the last days, there would be people who were rebelling against God. They talked about these last days, the eschaton that we're now living in. And then he goes back in verse 8 through 13, and, and, he, ta and he talks about this other story, about this story of the archangel Michael, who contends with the devil over the bones of Moses. But what does he point out to us there? He says that he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. And then he goes on to talk about Cain, to talk about Korah's rebellion, to talk about those who sit at our love feasts, you know, probably a reference to communion, sitting in fellowship of the church, who, who are a disruptive presence who are leading people astray. And he says, look, here's the truth. Here's the reality. There are always people who oppose God, as we've said. But God's timing is perfect. And God will act when he is ready to act. And when, when Michael saw this great sin that was happening with the devil contending over these bones of Moses, a, a reference to an apocryphal story, he said, look, God's going to do it in his time. When Cain sinned against Abel, what happened to Cain? 
He didn't die. No, we read at the end of Genesis chapter 4, these generations and generations that come from Cain that continue on in this life of sin. If you remember the story of Korah's rebellion, it's the same thing. Here they are in, in the Exodus, traveling to the land of promise, and Korah and his family oppose God. And there is a great judgment that comes against him, but his family still continues on with the Israelites. They still are among us. And Jude says, this is the reality we're still living in today. He talks about these love feasts. He talks about our fellowship as believers. He says, look, there are people who oppose God. They live among us. But God will act in his own time. And God will uphold justice in his own way and at his own time. And so for us, the challenge is to live now currently with patience, knowing that it is God who will work when he is ready to work, knowing that we are on his time, we are living in his world, in his kingdom, and he will do what he wants to do when he's ready to do it. And I think that's a hard message for us to digest today. Because if you're like me, you, you live in a very impatient world. You know, I was thinking as, as Ken was giving us that confession of sin, how not only is our, our lives marked by worry, but so many products that we have are there to fill this gap of worry that we feel. We, we have this impatience that's always in us, this impatience that's always present before us. And we're looking to fill that with so many different things. But I've been reading a lot recently, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, you go down this black hole of theology, uh, disability theology. I, I'd say that half-jokingly. It's great, great literature. Uh, but I've been reading a lot of disability theology recently, and one author, John Swinton, he has a book that's called Becoming Friends with Time. Where he thinks about this challenge of disabilities as it pertains to church. Did you know that as disabilities pertains to the church, those who grow up in religious settings are 40% more likely than, than, um, than other adults to not be found in religious settings in their adulthood. That people with developmental and intellectual disabilities who grow up in religious settings are 40% more likely than their peers to not be found in those settings as adults. That, that we as the church and we as a culture have a hard time finding a place for and accepting those who are not like us. Whether that's intellectually, developmentally, socially, racially, economically, whatever. We a lot of times have a hard time accepting people who are not like us. And there's this book that John Swinton writes addressing this issue of disability theology, becoming friends with time. He says, look, the problem is that a lot of times we don't live on God's timing, but we like to live on our own time. That when you're dealing with a person who is not like you, that the problem is learning to live by patience and learning to live life in God's way and not our own way. Knowing that that conversation is going to be just a little bit harder, that caring for that person is going to be a little bit more complex that is, you care for a person with dementia and they're oftentimes giving you something that you're not expecting or wanting, that oftentimes that makes your life very challenging. 
And I think what we oftentimes need to know and we need to understand is that God's patience is much greater than ours. That God's capacity for love is, is, is infinitely greater than our own. And that God calls us as his people to live lives of patience, to trust in his timing, to know that he will act and he will do what he wants to do and uphold justice in his own time. And as we live in this life now, we must live with this greater capacity for patience. As we trust in this God who has saved us, as we trust in this God who has created us, as we trust in this God who is presently ruling and reigning, and we live in this world that is oftentimes very confusing, but we live to a God who is very certain and is very loving and is very merciful and is extremely patient. And the question is, can we have that capacity for patience? Can we trust in this God and see his patience? Can we trust in his mercy that he gives to us, this mercy where we find ourselves here at the end of the passage? Because as James, as Jude ends his epistle to us, he shows us and, and lays us at the feet of God's mercy. He lays us at the feet of God's mercy, saying, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of fire to show mercy uh, to, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by sin. He says, here's the challenge of living in this world that we, as Christians, are called to do so by mercy. They were called to do so by grace. They were called to do so in love because God has loved us through Jesus Christ. Because although we are sinners, although we are often unfaithful, and we are often impatient, and we're not like the God who saved us, that God, by his mercy, saved us out of our sin and brought us into this place of hope and brought us into this place of joy. Why we can even talk about these things together today, because he loved us first by giving his son, Jesus Christ, for us in order that through Jesus Christ that we might live by hope, that we might live by mercy, that we, as I love, James says here, even looking at this broken world with an eye towards saving others. He says, save them by snatching them out of the fire, showing mercy to others. When we think about that capacity of mercy, that capacity of hope, that reality that he says, look, Jesus Christ saved us first. Can we now turn to this world in mercy? Can we now turn to this world in love? Can we look at this broken world with the grace and the mercy that God does? And the question for us as we end our time of reflection on the scriptures today is, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? And I think, you know, as I've shared before, uh, you know, in here, and, and as many of you guys know, uh, my wife and I, we moved up to North Laning Road, our house burned down, that's a whole nother story, but we moved out there uh, because I didn't realize at the time I got married to my wife a decade ago, uh, although I should have known she's a Knoxville girl, but she, she lived in Norfolk and she was a country girl at heart. 
And so we moved out to North Landing Road because she wanted to do a little hobby farm thing, have chickens and ducks and all that kind of stuff. Because what you might not know uh, in the few times that we've been able to visit with you guys here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church is that, you know, I, I am uh, a somewhat stubborn person. You know, I would say on the scale to stubbornness, almost to, to, you know, tipping the scales to very stubborn. But I also have three kids who are very stubborn. And, and that kind of tends to fill my wife with a bit of anxiety. As you can imagine, living in a house with three hard-headed or four hard-headed people, uh, you know, it's, it's not the easiest situation. So we moved out to this farm. We're doing the farm thing. And my wife would get up every morning when we were there, and, and she would um, go out and put her boots on to take care of all the animals. And this brought her a lot of joy and a lot of peace. As she woke up in the morning thinking about all the anxiety that's there in, in that household in her life, and she could put on her boots, walk out into the yard, and kind of embody this place of peace, this place of hope, this place of joy. And she could take on this identity of what she was truly made to be, and that was someone who was caring for these animals and doing something that she loved and that she enjoyed. And that's what Christ offers for us in his death and his resurrection. He, he gives us this new reality. He gives us this new body to put on, to be part of. He gives us this hope of life forever with him, this hope of mercy and this hope of grace. And in that place of hope, he calls us to go out to the world to show the great hope, the same hope and the same mercy to that broken world. And that's what Christ offers to us. And that's what Christ calls us to. And that's why we now can hold fast to this faith, not because of our ability, but because Christ held fast to us first. And Christ holding fast to us gives us this hope first that we might live forever before him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we think about your great love and mercy and grace to us through Christ, that we might hold fast to you as you hold fast to us this day. May we go out into this broken world, showing it the grace and mercy that you showed first to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.